welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series eight and episode 17. And our theme is the urgency of deciding to believe in Jesus. Our text for today is Luke 13 verses 1 to 9. Those of you who've been uh, following the episodes in series 8 will know that we started in John's Gospel looking at a few incidents in Jerusalem and then for most of this series we have been uh, consistently in Luke's Gospel following uh, the story of Jesus's life as told by Luke, as he has assembled material which describes a particular phase of Jesus' ministry that obviously interested Luke and uh, which is incredibly important for us. It's commonly assumed uh, by many people that most of the gospel materials just talk about Jesus's work in Galilee where he lived and worked. That's not entirely true. We do know that he spent most of his time in Galilee, probably a three-year period. We've identified three tours of Galilee that he made and taking his disciples with him and giving them increasing responsibility as time went on. Uh, we know that vast crowds came there. We know some wonderful things that happened there. There's a lot of material from that period and it's a very rich and wonderful amount of material uh, that we can learn from. But Luke particularly draws our attention to the fact that after Jesus left Galilee and very specifically decided the time had come in his father's plan that he should travel south, leave the Galilean ministry, leave the popularity there, uh, leave all his connections there, his friendships, um, his family uh, in and around Nazareth, um, all the people who knew him in Capernaum, his base for his ministry. When Jesus decided to leave all that, um, a whole new period of ministry turned up in which, um, you know, he was traveling light. He wasn't sure where he was going to be staying day by day. He wasn't necessarily in friendly territory. There was an unpredictable response from the people that he was meeting in Samaria in the center of the country and in Judea in the south, particularly in Samaria. Uh, we know that, that there were hostile responses from some villages and communities which are actually recorded in Luke's Gospel. But the interesting thing about this period, which is one of uncertainty, one of anticipation, one of excitement, one of developments in the story, the interesting thing is how many different themes all come together. Luke doesn't make a huge effort to tell us exactly where Jesus is going or where he is in the country, obviously traveling around quite a lot. Luke does point out that um, 72 are sent out all around the country to, uh, in pairs to uh, preach the message and to spread the news about the kingdom of God coming through Jesus. So it's a very exciting and dynamic and uncertain time. What we do know is that there were still very large crowds following Jesus. We also know that um, opposition was rising, and we studied that in Luke's account in chapter 11 and chapter 12 of Luke in the previous episodes. So you'll, you'll, you'll have noticed if you followed through uh, that uh, opposition is rising. It's getting more intense. And I think a feeling of insecurity amongst the religious authorities, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the members of the Sanhedrin, the priestly class, even the high priest himself, that there's a sense in which their territory is being invaded because as Jesus comes south, um, 
they, they, they might have the feeling, you know, with a large crowd of people with him and all his disciples with him, they might have the feeling that he's moving towards a confrontation with them in their headquarters in Jerusalem. Well, that is in fact exactly what Jesus intended. So the energy of his opponents rises up to try and resist him, try and refute him, try and contradict him, try and draw the crowds away from him. So it's a very, very interesting time. And Luke gives us all sorts of different material. We've seen quite a number of parables already, and there's more to come, some of which are unique to Luke's gospel and a very rich um, source of understanding and knowledge for us. But there's also a lot of teaching about um, discipleship. And that's been the, the main theme of chapter 12. So as we come to our short and fascinating passage today, I want to just remind us or reorientate us towards some of the highlights of Jesus' teaching in Luke 12. And hopefully many of you will have followed this through by going through the earlier episodes. But if you haven't, or if you've forgotten some of the details, um, I'd love to just remind you of uh, some of them. In the first passage of Luke 12, the first 12 verses, Jesus strongly encourages uh, his followers to be absolutely true to their calling, to be willing to identify themselves as Christians, to be willing to face persecution and opposition, even the possibility of physical suffering and death, with the incredible benefit that God will bless them in eternity um, out of all proportion to any possible suffering they may have in this life. He then goes on through the parable of the rich fool and the subsequent teaching to warn people that um, materialism should never get hold of their heart and should never get hold of their inner motivation. They shouldn't be driven by the need for security and money and power and prestige, like the farmer there who built his extra large barns because he had such a huge harvest and he thought he didn't need to work anymore, he could just relax, then he suddenly died. And as we continue, the two further parables in the middle of the chapter start talking about Jesus' second coming more explicitly. For example, in Luke 12, 40, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So Jesus brings in the theme of the second coming. He's helping people to realize that they live in between two critical events, the first coming of Jesus and his returning glory later on, exactly as you and I live right now. We're in between two events and we need to orientate our lives towards both. We need to absorb the implications of the first coming, the salvation that's offered to us. And then we need to prepare for the second coming where we will be held to account for the life that we have lived. So that's a major theme of the central section of chapter 12. And Jesus ends that chapter uh, with some statements and teaching which we looked at in the last episode, uh, including the uh, well-known statement, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division, Luke 12, 51. Just warning people that um, there's no neutrality. There is a division and even families will be divided, something that some people find unthinkable because family solidarity around religion is part of the cultures of many nations in the world. But Jesus has said that the kingdom will actually subvert that and some will follow him and some won't. And we have to live with the consequences of that. That's a very 
profound teaching. And of course, it's based on the idea that he's building a family of believers, the family of God, the body of Christ, the temple of God, uh, the household of God, to use Paul's expression in 1 Timothy 3, um, which is far greater than human kinship, human family and human community. He's calling us to join that family at whatever the cost. And then he's saying, in conclusion, when he uses the analogy of forecasting the weather, which was relatively easy to do uh, in the main uh, in Israel, he said, you know, if you can forecast the weather by looking at clouds and wind and other signs, then why can't you understand the signs of the times which tell you that I am the Messiah and this is my time and you need to believe in me. So here are some of the themes of the preceding passage in Luke 12. And so we continue. And what has been shared in Luke 12 and taught is relevant to where we're going in this uh, new section. But this new section um, starts off in a very, very different way, where some group of people, as they're traveling along, told a story to Jesus about something that happened recently in Jerusalem, something uh, very terrible that happened recently in the city of Jerusalem. And this provoked Jesus to bring another very important teaching around the importance of believing in him and following him wholeheartedly. Let's just read the first five verses. We'll, we'll deal with this passage in two sections Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Well, we need some contextual understanding to really understand what's going on here. So people are talking to Jesus and they're referring to an incident which is not recorded in the New Testament and it's not recorded specifically in any other historical document. But we can easily understand what this incident is and we, it uh, fits very closely together with other historical information we've got. They're talking about some pilgrims from Galilee who've gone to Jerusalem for a religious feast. Uh, a bit like Jesus had done on a number of occasions, as for example recorded in the passages in John we looked at at the beginning of series 8, described in John chapter 7 through to John chapter 10, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication. So we know that historically we know that uh, for the three main feasts of the year, particularly and at other times, the three main feasts, Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles, each of which could last about a week, 
Um, we know that pilgrims would come from all over the nation of Israel and they would converge on Jerusalem to celebrate these particular religious festivals and to go to the temple and to make sacrifices. We also know that Jewish people from other nations would also come to Israel. They travel long distance from uh, many different parts of the Roman Empire, particularly the Eastern Mediterranean, and also from countries to the east of Israel and to the north. They would come and uh, participate with other Jews in these main ceremonies. So we know that, and we found out a little bit about that uh, in some of the narrative already, when Jesus is described as going up to Jerusalem in connection with particular festivals, as described for us in the Gospel of John. So that we know, that's a foundational fact. And so Galileans, uh, living in the northern part of the country, had the longest journey to make in all of Israel. And Jesus would have made this journey as a pilgrim many times. On occasion in his short public ministry, we know of a few occasions, but we can assume that he would have done this as a youngster and a teenager and a young adult. Uh, and we actually see an example of him going up to Jerusalem with Joseph and Mary um, uh, in his adolescent years as described in Luke's Gospel chapter two. So we can get the picture of Jerusalem being crowded with pilgrims and they are involved in a number of religious ceremonies which vary from feast to feast and they're also involved in making sacrifices in the temple, sacrifices of animals or of birds or some other type of sacrifices occasionally according to the regulations of the law of Moses as understood at the time. That's the context. But here we have into the story introduced Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Many of you will be familiar with Pontius Pilate. He becomes a major character at the end of Jesus's life. But here is introduced very casually into the story. So let's just talk a little bit about him. The province of Judea, as opposed to Galilee in the north, the province of Judea was ruled at this time directly by a Roman governor. Now, where Jesus was living in Galilee was not ruled directly by the Romans. It was ruled indirectly through a king or a ruler called Herod Antipas, one of the sons of King Herod the Great. He ruled on behalf of the Romans. He had to do quite a few things on their behalf, particularly collecting taxation and keeping the peace. But in Judea, where Jerusalem is, there was no local ruler. The ruler was the Roman governor or Roman procurator. He was at this time a man called Pontius Pilate. He was a Roman and he was appointed directly by uh, the authorities in Rome with the approval of the emperor. And he had a responsibility for the province. Now, the Romans were very unpopular in general amongst the Jewish people, lots of tensions and difficulties. They also were very uh, powerful in military terms. They had a tremendously successful army and they had uh, troops stationed in all their different provinces around the Mediterranean where they ruled. And so Pontius Pilate had 
at his disposal a significant number of soldiers. He didn't live in Jerusalem, although it was the center of Judea in terms of the Jews. The Romans um, based their administration, their army, and their governorship in a town by the sea called Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea for short, which was built a short time before uh, these events. And that's where Pilate had his palace and his headquarters, and that's where he liked to be. It was a very Roman town built in a Roman style with relatively few Jews even living in the town. But every time there was a religious festival, especially the three main festivals in the year, it appears that Pilate would travel to Jerusalem with a considerably large armed escort. And he would take up residence in Jerusalem for a short period of time in a fortress right in the city near the temple. And the reason he did this was to keep control of uh, the general public, keep order and prevent any uprisings or any uh, actions against the Roman authorities by the discontented Jews. So he, it was a heavy-handed military presence. Now, knowing all that, this incident described here makes a lot of sense. Jesus was told about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Pilate had found some Galileans guilty of some crime against the Romans, unspecified, probably some violent crime or some rebellion of some sort or maybe an assassination or something like that, and he had executed them. And if the Romans executed people, they crucified them on crosses in public in exactly the same way that they were to crucify Jesus in a short time after this event. And so as these Galileans were making animal sacrifices in the temple, their blood was also being shed. They'd shed the blood of animals and now they lost their lives. That's the context. And... People were questioning Jesus about this. This was a commonplace incident and Jesus would have known these sort of things happening. But there's, a, there's an underlying question here which Jesus is seeking to answer, which is that when events happen like this, how are we to understand the responsibility of the individuals and particularly when it's very likely that they precipitated this action on behalf of the Romans they uh, something they did provoked the Romans and so it's interesting that in this passage as Jesus teaches he compares this incident with another incident at the time, which again, we don't have any record of elsewhere in any literature or in, in, in elsewhere in the Gospels, which is the falling down of a tower, an accident, uh, when a tower fell down and killed 18 people. Now, this would have been a well-known incident at the time. So this was a case of accidental death. So we have an interesting contrast here. We have some people who died because they'd done something wrong. That's the implication of that, isn't it? The Galileans who Pilate punished. 
And then we have 18 people who presumably were walking along the street nearby a tower or living in an, a nearby house. And then a tower comes crashing down completely unexpectedly, completely by accident, and they're killed. They haven't done anything wrong. They haven't been involved in this. They just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. This raises an interesting question about human responsibility. Why do people suffer? This is probably uh, behind the question, why are people suffering? And Jesus uh, uses this particular situation uh, to turn it into another type of discussion. He doesn't directly answer what we would describe as the problem of suffering or the question of pain and suffering in this world. He doesn't answer it very directly. What he does do is point out that life is very fragile. You can destroy your own life. It can be destroyed by accidental circumstances. It can be destroyed by natural events or processes going on in your body that you've got no control of. Life is very fragile. So Jesus is not drawn into an extended philosophical discussion about the problem of suffering. There's other resources we can use in the Bible to try and put some perspective on that. But what he does is to indicate that the thing to learn from tragedy, from human tragedy and human unexpected loss of life, is the need right now to not wait one moment before we get a right relationship with God, so that should that accident happen to us, or should we um, cause ourselves to be vulnerable to a premature death or suffering, then we will be saved. We will have that eternal relationship with God. I tell you no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus points out that it's better to put your trust in God and in Jesus Christ as Saviour and in God's provision than in the security of our fragile lives because they are incredibly fragile and many of us will have a very profound sense of that fragility from our own experience. We've seen suffering, tragedy, in our own families, in our own communities, in our own nations. We've seen civil war, we've seen disease, we've seen violence, we've seen uh, unexpected accidents causing immense human suffering. This is the very nature of the world we live in. And Jesus doesn't here attempt to interpret it at a philosophical level. He rather points out that the fragility should indicate to us that we need to put our security in uh, the living God and not in our own strength. He then goes on to tell a parable because he's going to apply all this particularly to the nation of Israel at the time. Verse 6, then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found 
any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Well, as always, Jesus' parables are provocative. They make you think. They've got a main point, which we've got to interpret. Almost certainly in this context, the fig tree is a metaphor for the nation of Israel. So much of Jesus' teaching in the preceding a couple of chapters has been about the nation of Israel and its moment of decision, which I've been emphasising in virtually every single episode uh, in the recent ones that we've been looking at. So it's likely he's talking here in the form of a metaphor about the nation of Israel. And what is so interesting about this is that this particular tree um, is fruitless for three years. A fig tree with no fruit for three years. And the man wanted to, to cut it up. He thought, well, you know, cut it down. Well, what's, what's the point of having a tree that's fruitless? It's like a dead tree. Let, let's just dig it up, get rid of it. Use the space for another tree. Well, it's a waste of space in the vineyard. Well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I think I'd feel exactly the same as this man did. But the other person in this conversation makes an interesting point, leave it alone for one more year. Now the really intriguing thing about this parable is it's likely that Jesus' ministry up to this point has lasted three years. We don't know exactly. Scholars are divided on how we exactly um, make up the time uh, within the Gospels. We don't have enough information to be absolutely dogmatic. But it's a very intriguing thought. If for three years Jesus has been ministering and the nation generally has been fruitless because despite the crowds there isn't a real surge of discipleship and wholehearted belief and there is the religious leadership that's totally opposed to Jesus. So it's fruitless in that sense. But it's interesting that this, the request is to leave it for one more year which would represent the final phase of Jesus' life and the immediate aftermath as the final opportunity to believe in the days of the early church and the day of Pentecost and so on. So this parable may be saying, and I think it probably is saying, that Israel is in what we might call the last chance saloon moment, the last opportunity as a nation to take up the cause of the Messiah and believe wholeheartedly. And if it fails to do so, then the nation will be brought into judgment and like this fig tree, cut down. Well, as I've said on a number of occasions, that's exactly what happened in 70 AD, just within the far end of one generation uh, of uh, the people who were uh, alive at the time of Jesus. Some of these people here would experience the events of AD 70 when the Romans destroyed the city and really abolished the institutions of the country. Jerusalem was gone, the temple was destroyed and Judaism was suppressed by the Romans. Well, 
I think you'll agree this is another challenging passage. We've had some very challenging passages all the way through Luke 12, but it continues. Some reflections. A perspective on suffering. Suffering can be caused, and often is caused, by human action. That's obvious. Much of the suffering in the world is human action which destroys ourselves or more likely destroys other people and makes them suffer. Or it could be caused by accidental circumstances which don't have an obvious cause and certainly not a human cause, like the fall of that tower or like natural disasters. We don't have a full explanation available to us right now about how all these things fit together. And Jesus didn't take the opportunity to give a full explanation. Rather, he used the fragility of human life to point to the necessity of trusting in God. And he warned strongly of the danger of delay or procrastination or waiting to make a decision. And just as that's true for individuals, it was also true at the time for the nation of Israel that urgently needed within the next year, so to speak, to make a corporate response affirming Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. This they totally failed to do. The opposite happened, as we shall find out when we study Jesus' death and we find that it's the Jewish religious leaders who uh, initiate the process of bringing Jesus to his death. The gospel of Jesus is always urgent and it always applies to all of us and that includes all of you who are listening to this episode today and I trust that you feel the force of Jesus's words and I trust you heed his advice and come to him in faith. Don't trust in the fragility of your own life, trust in the security of his promises and his salvation and his eternal destiny which he wants to share with us. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.